I just couldn't sign on the dotted line, and I didn't want to be a part of a club that didn't think about what they were supposed to be believing. This is In Good Faith, listening to first-person experiences of faith and belief. On In Good Faith, it's our privilege to hear stories and accounts from believers told in their own words. Our hope is to listen with an open heart, celebrating the power of faith and belief and what those stories mean to the ones who tell them. I'm speaking in good faith today with Dr. Brent Slife. I was really encouraged to talk to you when you gave a recent address called The Experience of Love and the Limitations of Psychological Explanation. I love it when scientists say there's something we can't explain or at least haven't learned to objectively analyze. Thank you for coming in today. Oh, my pleasure. You're a clinical psychologist, a professor of psychology here at Brigham Young University. You currently hold the Richard L. Evans Chair for Religious Understanding. I'd love to ask about that at some point. Okay. Also, you've received awards for doing research on the interface of science and religion. Mm-hmm. That's fascinating. Teacher of the Year Award, most recently the highest award here at the university, the Carl G. Major Distinguished Faculty Award. First of all, congratulations oh, for all of you. that. I'm leaving out over 10 books, 200-plus articles, et cetera, et cetera. But sneaking them in, I see. Oh, I'm trying (laughs) around the edges. Because interestingly enough, the qualification to be on this show doesn't necessarily tie in with any of those things. No, that's right, yeah. And I'm thrilled you're willing to talk to us about the faith aspect Mm -hmm. of your life. And especially, uh, I, I love what you said in your most recent lecture that I listened to, when we love someone who is other in some way, God is there. Right, well, that kind of sums up. <laughs> so well, much. and I, I was just, uh, I was just putting the finishing touches. That that particular lecture will be published in BYU Studies, and I was just realizing. So I put a reference to this effect that it reminded me of an old Episcopal rite song. It goes something like this: um, "Where true charity and love dwell." I could sing it, I guess, too. But where, okay where true that. charity and love dwell, God Himself is there. So that, I think, was the origin of that particular Is that that Ubi Caritas, the Latin version of that same? That's probably right. I love that one. Yeah. Several beautiful settings. Yeah. Well, will you tell me about your faith beginnings as a young person? Do you have memories of that coming into your life or becoming aware? Definitely. I think where I was most aware, I think like a lot of people in our currently affluenza-induced country. <laughs> we have that disease, I think. I didn't take it all that seriously until attending a, um, a Methodist, United Methodist Youth Fellowship confirmation class. And the uh, pastor was very clear that we needed to know the what they called, I think, the 25 articles of religion, which was, I think, probably some of the definition of what a Methodist is supposed to believe. Mm. And when I looked them over, I just wasn't quite sure. And my mother just very lovingly said, well, you know, you need to know whether you believe this or not. She was very devout. My, my father was not. But when it came to signing on the dotted line, in other words, to endorse my own confirmation as a member of the Methodist Church, I, I wasn't quite sure. And it caused quite a scandal. So this is in Hillbilly, Missouri. Um, in the hills of Missouri, and it's a very small town. My graduating high school class was like 35. This is a town of perhaps a 1,000. My father was probably the only educated person. He's a veterinarian in the community. He's a very prominent person, and I was prominently not endorsing 
my own confirmation, which is just people just did as a matter of course. Mm. So it caused a scandal. And uh, I was a little taken aback by that. So I asked members of the church, pillars of the community, and and I was I asked them especially about the 25 articles of religious articles or articles of religion. And not only did they not know a whole bunch about it, a lot of them didn't even know that they were supposed to believe in it. Hmm. So it, it really struck me that this was a religion that people didn't have to think. And, and that just, I think, so this particular turning point has to do with my intellectual life in relation to my religious life. And I just couldn't sign on the dotted line, so to speak, because I really couldn't, I didn't know whether I'd endorse it. And I didn't want to be a part of a, of a club which is the way it seemed to me at that point, that didn't think about what they were supposed to be believing. So I sort of dug in my heels, as many teenagers can do. I was probably 12, and I essentially became an atheist, or thought I had, you know. And a buddy of mine and I went around from, to the, some of the other churches just to ask some, some questions that we thought were thoughtful. And I remember one experience very vividly. We were in a so-called conversation about it, and they just lined the aisles as we walked out of the church, and they just were all pointing us and saying, you're going to go to hell for asking those kinds of questions. And so it was— This at 12 years old. You're right, wow. right. Um, and I, I just—I I th- I think, uh, thank goodness for my mother, she encouraged me to think and to own it. And that made a big, big difference to me. Hmm. But, I, but I was an atheist, really, from about 12 or 13 through my first or second year of college, trying to out-argue everybody. <laughs> 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 so as you can imagine, I, I sort of identify with Saul of Tarsus and, uh, and the conversion that occurred there. So. But you do imply that there was a change. Right. At some point in college. Yeah, you're right. Um, kind of odd for probably for me is I was both a philosophy and a psychology major. And philosophy is, I think, the thing that brought me back. So it was an intellectual journey in a, in a way. I had to sort of make sure it was okay intellectually with me that I could really think about my faith. Um, so I just remember very vividly all the things that I – that I was reading about in philosophy, there were things I agreed with and things I didn't. But the things I agreed with, I just remember being struck that this guy, Jesus, he stood for these things. The things that made the most sense to me were the things that he stood for. And so it really, I then came back around, started reading the Bible for myself, Mm. not just for fun stories, you know, or just because I had to. And that's when I began to really own it. And that's when, I guess you could say, my conversion occurred. Was there a moment or was this a, a, a process? I think for me it was a process. I don't remember a moment per se. I certainly wasn't thunderstruck. It was more sort of, gosh, it was more being convinced, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. Now, as a scientist of a certain sort, mm-hmm. did you ever, that part of you that observes from outside, look at yourself and say, wow, I seem to really be believing this? Um, you mean at that time? Uh-huh. Or at any point along the along the, the right, um, I don't I don't recall for sure having that kind of an experience. It just, and again, I, I always had in my head. I believe my dear mother, who since is long since passed away, but she just encouraging me to think it through. And I think having a kind of a faith 
that I would come to the truth on my own. So I so appreciate that. So I, I don't recall, you know, I, I guess I'm not very introspective in that regard. I don't think back on my history and wonder about it that I'm way. actually quite impressed with your mother. Yeah. That she would I, have the too. faith to trust you to God instead of going off the deep end and joining right. the people who'd been pointing fingers. Right. Yeah, I think as a parent, because obviously now that I have three sons, that there's a bit of risk in that. You say it right, it's trusting me to God. God is acting in the world, right? And could be acting with her son, but of course we also know of examples where the people go awry and stay awry, at least from our perspective. So, yeah, she she had to be willing, I think, to take the risk. She had to not be safe about it and al- allow me to have uh, some license. And I think that's important for parenting, I think particularly with religious uh, beliefs. Hmm. You're actually on the board of directors of a local congregation right. that you worship with. Correct. Tell me about what a congregation of believers means to you. I think for at least us at uh, Centerpoint Church mm-hmm. uh, in, in Orem, for us it means family. So this is a church, as you well know, uh, this church is not part of the majority. And a lot of people in the church are working in a sense that they feel very, very minority. Um, even here at BYU, right, for me, I am a non-LDS. I'm a non. I'm not a something. <laughs> and so it's, it's very important, we feel, at our church to have a sense of you belong here in a familial kind of a way. Yes. So it's very important to us that their love pervades the congregation. Now, that doesn't mean it's just love and, you know, mamby-pamby kind of caring and being nice. But it, there's – so I think it's very – so Centerpoint is the largest congregation, I believe, Protestant congregation in Utah County. And so it means a great deal to us to be a resource to these people who sometimes feel a little surrounded. Tell me about – what you called – let me find the quote here. Okay. You're a real quotable guy, which is pretty handy. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> oh I don't know about that. In your recent address, uh, you, you mentioned two things that particularly struck me. Uh, you said, I have long wished to interface the sacred and the secular, the sacredness of my faith and the secularity of my discipline of right. psychology. Right. That religion is a way to really understand hearts or hearts slash minds, wherever that division comes. Right. Psychology, here's this whole other set of tools. How do you interface those two? Uh, do you think of them, as, as I'm suggesting, as different ways of looking at the same thing? Definitely, I do. Well, I don't even, yeah, different ways of looking at the same thing. There's some, there's some controversy about that mm. because if we're using a particular worldview, let's say a God-oriented worldview, a theistic worldview, is that the same – are you experiencing the same world that someone who's experiencing an atheist worldview mm. would have? So is that the same world, right? Now, obviously, there could be some things in common, but this is where I could get to, way too academic probably for these purposes. But I do believe that the sacredness of my Christianity is a different worldview in probably – I'm a little afraid that we underestimate just how radically different it is 
especially from the view that many psychologists take, which I would call naturalism. So these are, these are not diametrically opposed. There's certainly a lot of commonality between them, but, they're, but they are, I think, in great contrast to one another. And so to interface those, I think that's probably the correct verb. To interface those, I don't think you can integrate them. Let's put them oh. that way, because they start from radically different assumptions. Are these two circles on the Venn diagram that maybe touch but don't overlap? Something along those lines, I would say, mm. yeah. And, and so one of my fascinations in my own discipline has been, what if God truly mattered in my discipline? In other words, what if you started with a different set of assumptions where God was active in the world? What if that made a difference in psychotherapy? I'm a psychotherapist. What if it made a difference in learning theory and social psychology and so forth? I think we'd find a radically different psychology. And so that's, that's put me at odds with some of the secularity of the discipline. Mm. And so I, I'm, I'm somewhat critical of psychology. Now, in the midst of all this, you have kept a private practice. Right, right. And of course, I won't ask about individuals or anything like right. that, but mm-hmm. you must have occasion to speak with people both with and without a faith of Correct. some kind. That's true. Does that make a difference in how they reconcile the, the things that are causing them tension? Or how, how does it that does. play out? It does. It makes a difference with how I interact with them, too. Now, I think I can still draw on spiritual insights. I think I can still pray for them if they're an atheist or they're agnostic or they don't care at all about religion. I, but I, do, I don't probably use a Christian rhetoric with them. And most often, so, so here's where there's commonality. I think most even people who don't endorse a faith at all still probably endorse a Judeo-Christian ethic. And I think that's always striking. But from my standpoint, they just don't give God the credit for the ethic. So there's a commonality, I think, often in ethos and it's probably a difference in how well and what credit they give to the person who gave the ethic, right? Mm-hmm. So religious people, I think, are somewhat easier. I'm do, I do mostly marital therapy. So as you can imagine, there are lots of people who are wanting to claw each other's eyes out, <laughs> come into me, and yet they're, they're trying to stay together. I think that faith that maybe they can find a way is probably more easily done if they are religious, and maybe that's that's probably going to be controversial, but th- those are some of the differences and similarities I would see. And coming down to what would be the more individual for you, are there practices that make you feel like you are in tune and connected to the divine, whether daily or weekly? Oh, um, like religious discipline, you're saying mm-hmm. spiritual discipline? Prayer or scripture or church attendance or service or well, what are all, those all of the above. Yeah, it's very important to, I think, knit the day in prayer, right, to begin and end the day in prayer for sure. But I was just talking with a client about this, as a matter of fact. I think it's important that the prayers, in a sense, be extended so that we live, in a sense, prayerful existences. And so that's not easy to do. I think there are whole, there are whole blocks of time during the day that I live my life as a naturalist, you know, as though God doesn't matter. In which case, I think a lot of us are practical atheists. I would at least call myself that, at least a lot of the time. As mundane as I'm making stew, I buy carrots, I chop them, and this is all me. Right. 
Yeah, I, so so a, the, a a truly theistic approach to life where God is matters, everything needs to be explained as though God is a necessary element of whatever's going on. I mean, the rack and pinion steering of our cars, you know, the internal combustion of a lawnmower, right? Um, the blade of grass that's growing. None of that could occur from a theistic, I think, or a Christian standpoint other than God being involved. And I think we tend to live our lives, and this is where science can be a problem. If you use science as an explanation as though God isn't necessary, then I think you, I think we're very prone to, to assume the world is naturalistic, except when we go to church or except for certain things. So I'm very interested in what you said about, it sounded to me like you said not to have a prayer that ends. Right. But have sort of an ongoing state of prayer. Right. So how does that influence your day and how, how you handle what happens or what, what comes up? Uh, one thing I think that's important to me, at least when, when I talk with clients, psychologists, the secular psychology would probably endorse what a lot of people in our culture would endorse, and that's the importance of happiness. So if you talk with people, what do you most want in life? They'll pretty much say, if I could just be happy. Mm. If you talk with mamas, uh, what do you want for your children? I just want my children to be happy. And I'm very skeptical, I guess, of emotional satisfaction like that. I think what we're called to do is what's right and good. Now, that can certainly lead us to happiness, but it doesn't always have to. In which case, um, what does the Lord really want me to do here and now? Can and, I, and what about the difficult things that happen in a human life. Right, right, exactly. So, yeah, I, I was mentioning to a client this morning that if my wife were to uh, suddenly become chronically ill, I guarantee you she wouldn't be happy. And I wouldn't be happy, I know this about myself, caring for her, but I know what's right and good, mm -hmm. and that would be to care for her. So we could both be very unhappy, but both be doing the Lord's will and, but I, I do think that we would probably each have a sense in doing that will of this peace that passes all understanding. I just don't think that's happiness. Something different. Yeah, it's not, it's not an emotional satisfaction per se as much as it is a sense of relationship with something that's greater than myself. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. And talking about everyday things and being open to spiritual aspects or, or of having God with you right. because you've chosen to open your heart throughout the day almost seems like in the New Testament what Jesus did of drawing on the everyday objects right. and, and sharing the stories and teaching the principles rather mm -hmm. than be kind to one another. <laughs> Live right. with integrity. Yeah. Pay attention to the important things. I mean, he could have made a very short book or yes. very short teachings, yeah. but yet every time you see a, a rock with just a little bit of dirt on it and a plant withering in the sun, yeah, you have this whole image. I like that very much. In fact, I think one of the most important things we can do is make the ordinary sacred, affirming the ordinary as sacred. I think that's partly what you're talking about, whether it's this radio program, or it's the glass of water that we have in front of us. And in that sense, to have a sense of gratitude. I mean, I think that's part of that everydayness that we consecrate to the Lord. 
that that just seems vital to me. And I'm, I'm a little afraid we've made the big things, you know, those are the things that the Lord concerns himself with. I think he concerns himself with the little rock with the dirt on it that you're talking about. That, to coin a phrase, attitude of gratitude. Right. What a tiny effort. But it sounds like, but you see big dividends from that. Well, uh, not dividends, uh, dividends in the sense of living into our faith, not dividends in the sense of that we'll be happy, right? In other words, it's that spirituality, not that you're saying this, spirituality is not an instrument, right, of us experiencing happiness. Happiness is a byproduct, mm-hmm. not the end, if that makes sense. So it it can ensue, but I don't think it's something. Again, I'm I'm a battling. I think psychologist who would assume, for example, since you're not happy, you're depressed, you're automatically something's wrong. I'm not so sure. Now, certainly something can be wrong, but I'm not so sure that a lot of the ways in which we treat depression aren't spiritual struggles and a whole bunch of other issues that maybe we're doing the Lord's will. I just I doubt that. Jesus was all that happy as he carried the cross, you know, up to mm. Golgotha. So I, I, I don't think we'd need to give him uh, antidepressants on his way, if that makes sense. So it was actually a depressing, difficult right, thing, right? And it can be acknowledged. And we, and that's right. And we all experience those. Um, and I think those don't have to be automatically seen as not only bad, but also I think we today see them as morally bad. Somehow I'm wrong because I'm not happy. So that's a big deal. Are there times, and this is personal, you can decide how you feel about this. Sure. Where you have felt like this test, this event is beyond what I can handle. Oh, of course. Oh, my gosh. I mean, I think we should feel like that all the time, or at least a lot of the time, (laughs) because most events I don't think we really can handle. I mean, to the degree that I feel under control, to me the paradox of that is – that's probably the degree to which I am my own God. I, I'm always amazed at when I feel the least in control, that's when I'm probably praying more. Mm-hmm. So it's in the week that you're made strong in the Lord. I mean, there's just all kinds of interesting ironies um, with all of that. But I, I'm very aware that I'm probably most sort of practically atheist when I feel most under control. It's when I'm most uh, fearful, right, mm-hmm. that I'm praying or that I've, I've just had – my wife and I just had a son who was in Afghanistan, you know, as a special forces person. And we don't feel any control there. Well, we're just praying all the time, of course. Yes, yes. Yeah. Oh, now, well. now that he's home, we haven't prayed for him nearly as much. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but what – I mean, there's the, the example and the visual and the thing that will reach the heart – of any parent or, or, or someone right. who cares about someone. Yeah, totally out of your control. Right. What should I ask you that I don't know to ask you? Oh, gosh, I don't know. A particular thing you would hope to share? Uh, you know, I guess uh, it goes back to my discipline a little bit and the naturalism we're talking about. I was struck as a new Christian. Uh, so this is, of course, after my atheism. Um, I just graduated from college and I've, I've written about this uh, fairly extensively, but this woman in Indiana, I went to Purdue to get my doctorate, and this Indiana woman came in and said she was depressed and that she was pretty convinced it was a spiritual struggle, could I help her? And when my uh, supervisor saw the tape of the session, he said, please 
disabuse her, Mr. Slife, of that religious claptrap um, because that's not going to make her, you know, less depressed. Hmm. So I, like a good student, um, I carried the message of my supervisor to this woman and I taught her basically secular, naturalistic ways of understanding her depression. And I think the the sadness I feel now in retrospect, I guess, is that if I had continued, if she had continued with me and we, we had a very successful, fairly successful thing, basically teaching her not to believe, right, mm-hmm. in her God with respect to her emotions, right, her depression. I helped her to explain herself and her depression and her happiness in purely secular terms, which was the that's what my supervisor wanted to me to do, of course. But it but I I feel so sad about that now because if I'd continued with her, I would have eventually she trusted me, yeah. And I was a scientist, of course, and so she had to trust science. I would have progressively, little by little over time, I would have convinced her, I think, to leave her faith. I would have given her a whole other set of explanations for her life. Um, And I just don't think psychologists should be doing that. So there has to be a way, it seems to me, where we can embrace that kind of faith without... Well, this leads beautifully to the other quote from you. Okay. (laughs) Love has seemed safely beyond the research scientist's ever-extending grasp. Actually, you're quoting Robert Sternberg there. Right, I am. And that there is something, at least at present, beyond the research. Oh, yes. So, boy, how can you, when something is as unquantifiable, at least I think it is, Mm -hmm. as love or the love of God or the interaction of a spiritual realm with a human being— how do you incorporate that? Boy, what, an, what a, a place to explore. Yeah. But it sounds like there are people who will say, no, we can't explore that. Well, we can't explore it with, again, a naturalistic understanding. So the person whose talk that I'm most – this particular – his name is Jean-Luc Marion. He would say that um, love defies conventional logic. Right, it defies conventional sort of naturalistic, scientific, or maybe even scientistic understanding. But it doesn't. It has its own logic, and I think you wouldn't understand that logic if you weren't able to embrace a little more of a, a theistic, or in his case, a Christian understanding of that. So I think we can understand it, but we have to first start with the right assumptions to make sense of it. Mm. Dr. Brent Slife. Thank you for speaking in good faith. You're you're very welcome. It's a pleasure. Thanks for tuning in to In Good Faith. In the second half of the show, we'll hear from a panel of listeners discussing some of the ideas brought up by our guest, Dr. Slife. Back in a moment with more of In Good Faith. This is In Good Faith, listening to first-person accounts and stories of faith and belief. In the first half, Dr. Brent's life brought up some pretty compelling ideas. Children questioning their parents' beliefs, parents trusting their children to God. Also, is what we call happiness really the greatest good in life? 
Do those ideas get you thinking? We asked a group of listeners to share their thoughts and feelings after hearing the interview in this episode. Mark Miner's father was career military, so he went to nine schools in 12 years, was in state prison at age 17, and has been in recovery from addiction for 20-plus years. He's grateful to be alive and be a volunteer in both community and faith-based 12-step programs. Don Shaline has been in radio for most of his life. He enjoys playing in the recording studio, adding Foley sound effects to movies, and rocking with his buddies in various bands. Elizabeth Rhodes is a mother whose kids are her favorites. She has a degree in social work and human development and loves things that grow, faith, children, families, gardens, etc. Lena Rogers is mother, grandmother, genealogist, traveler, sport lover, and eternal student in love with life, and she's proud to be 100% Finnish. Listening to Brent's life, the fact that he, uh, at a young age, was able to not only start grappling with these uh, ideas about religion, but uh, was able to even stand up against some pretty tough social pressure. And and what I love is that I, I think that's something that is, is more common than, than we realize. A lot of us went through, I know I did, at, at that age, at the age of 12 or so, a number of things that, you know, in my own life kind of maybe broke with some of the norms I was around. I had a family that didn't believe the same way I did and, and started uh, – kind of going that direction on my own uh, to the point of where I got involved in a religion that I was believing in. I don't know. I wonder what it is about that young age. Developmentally, it's a very formative age, and it's a time where we start to break with our tradition and we start to see things from our own eyes. We have enough experience that we don't have to rely just on the, the direction we're given by adults particularly our parents or those that are most influential in our early lives. So I think that it is a very important age. It's a time where we start thinking and seeing things from a different perspective. It's also a time where we come more in contact with the world. And so it's possibly a time where we receive more input different from the traditions of our families. I think something else that's important, though, is that at that age, our bodies are big enough and strong enough to do things differently, that we're not so reliant for our our care and our maintenance as we perhaps have been before. So I do think that's a very important age. Yeah, maybe we even feel like that, hey, if people don't like me or whatever, that's all right. I'm big enough. I can make it on my own, even though we're you know, big old 12 years old or something. But we feel like we can strike out on our own if we have to. That's, that's a frightening thing for me to think about 12 and 13-year-olds having well, to live well, on their our own. Our own now, yeah, thinking of our own 12-year-old. But yeah. I do. Um, with Dr. Slife, it was interesting to me. I mean, I just felt such admiration for him to ask those questions and then admiration for his mother to be able to support him in his journey and, and to have confidence in, that he would continue his spiritual journey. I really appreciated that. I don't remember experiencing something like that as a youth that age. And I, I really admired and appreciated the whole dynamic that happened there as well as his own personal courage to ask questions. I was brought up Protestant, and it's interesting that at about age 12, 13, is when I began the search for religion and faith. Belief in God, I had parents who were very, very religious as far as their spiritual lives, but not church attenders. And I had an experience of going to several meetings where people were being saved, called up to be saved. But I wasn't ready for that at that age. 
And yet I had those questions, wanting to find God, wanting to know that he loved me and cared about me. And not coming from an active religious background, eventually I found several friends who had a certain religious faith that they wanted to introduce me to. And I found acceptance, and I was just surprised at how comfortable I felt in this setting. And so for me, that was probably my religious awakening moment. I was about 13 and a half, 14. Mark, this sounds like we're all kind of sharing some of that. Did, did you have any of that at, at, at that young age that you felt a little bit of owning your own Of course. Uh, when I was six or seven, I found out my parents' marriage was failing. And I believed strongly in a God from a young age. My parents were never active in any church. But I thought it was my duty to fix my parents' broken marriage. And by the time I was about 13, I realized I had failed. And it caused a real crisis of faith. But it caused me to reflect and to think and to not accept the norm. And the area where I really relate with uh, Dr. Slife is that he was a thinker. He was not a conformist. But he was not content with not finding an answer. He continued forward to find the answers that worked in the very heart of his being, in his soul. And as he continued forward in that way, he had a mother who trusted him to God, and it all eventually worked out. And because he was not a conformist, he now makes a difference with many other people. I was intrigued when he said that he felt a strong uh, sense of needing to belong, and now he's basically shepherding other people who need to find a place to belong with whatever their beliefs are. He's a champion for them. It was cool when he was talking about, he calls himself his atheist period or whatever, when he pulled away from these organized religions, was in college, but as he studied the life of Christ, he found a very sympathetic uh, what way of believing that uh, different maybe than how he was brought up. He found here is someone who uh, teaches things that really resonate with me, that he really found truth in, in how Christ lived. I was born in Finland, and so we had religious education right away in first grade, the first period of the day was Bible stories. And so I was very familiar with Old Testament stories and especially with the life of Christ, which I loved. And my parents gave me a book one Christmas when I had finally learned how to read well that was the life of Christ, and I studied that. And it took him a long time to come to that as an adult finally to realize how important Christ's life was and how it reflected the things that he was thinking about. Um, I've, I think that all of us go through a journey. And so I really appreciated that, hearing that viewpoint, that it sometimes takes us longer. And sometimes we think we know, and then all of a sudden we have questions through our lives. He has gone into the sciences, but I liked what he said somewhere in there about uh, bridging between the secular and the sacred that you can interface them, you can't integrate them. Is that what he said? Something like that? Because mm -hmm. I wrote that down. Yeah, what, what, what do you think he meant by that? 
he just said it's not possible to integrate them. He said that um, as a psychologist, he is at odds with the believer because it seems like one is natural, follows the naturalistic path, but you have to be spiritual and let some things go in order to be a believer. Do you think, because each of us in this room has our own religious beliefs and, and Dr. Slife has his, does that also relate to how we interact with each other? Do we interface with each other? We can interface without integrating? Do you see where I'm going with that? That, that where we may have different religious beliefs, that may be okay? It helps us to find the common ground. He simply has been able to recognize that that science and psychology and therapy can provide many answers, but there are other answers which are available for those who seek them in another dimension. And he's not advocating one or the other above any, He, but he asks the hard question. He says, what if God can make a difference in our psychology, in our treatment, in our therapy? And if that is the line that you want to go down, here are some possible avenues to approach that. Definitely open to that possibility. He doesn't force it on people, but yeah. he says, if God could make a difference, look at what that opens up. Uh, it was, Lena, it was interesting when he talked about the woman that he counseled, you know, when he was going to college and how he felt badly that he had taken the path that he took with her when she was a believer he felt that he had taken the wrong approach to helping her with her depression. It sounded like had he continued with her, he would have helped her out of her religion, out of her believing at all, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. yeah, thinking that that's a handicap, and I believe totally the opposite. Yeah. For me, my faith helps me at times when things are very difficult. And the thing that I wrote down as I was listening to him talk was a note about my mother-in-law. He talked about happiness. He talked about how spirituality is not an instrument of happiness. Doing the Lord's will may be something very difficult rather than bringing us happiness. It may bring us grief. And my mother-in-law, her whole life was music. She was a music student here at BYU. She was in choirs. She directed choirs. She loved music. It was her life. When she was in her mid-70s, macular degeneration set in, and she lost her ability to read music. She could no longer direct her choir. And I saw her struggle with this handicap so much, believing that there is a God who loves us, but not understanding why she had to go through this trial. And she put up such a good front, and most of the time you thought, you know, she was the happiest person on earth, but I saw tears, and I saw the frustration that she had, and she couldn't even see her grandchildren or great-grandchildren as she got older. So my husband and I talked about this one day, that maybe God's joy is not, when he talks about joy, it isn't in the same terms that we think of it. I totally agree. I, I was had a chance uh, this past Sunday to be part of a meeting where some successful uh, women in business were talking to some young women about future careers and things like that, and and uh, you know just kind of planning on life. And uh, there was one who spoke about. I think my most important thing I need to do in life is be happy. That's really what I want to do is be happy. 
And where that is, we all want to be happy. I really liked where uh, he spoke of this, that that is not well, – well, for instance, that Jesus was not necessarily happy as he walked to Golgotha, that that was a tremendously – terribly hard thing to be doing, and there was probably not a, sm- a lot of smiling at that moment. Yeah, he was called a man of sorrows and right. a man of grief. Right. But and, and if we were to follow him, we need to know how to work in those same realms and still find joy, and still find the joy in that journey, and still find the ultimate peace which surpasseth all understanding, which Dr. Mm-hmm. Slife mentioned. And I think my mother-in-law resolved that in her life, but it was a process. Something that um, occurs to me is that happiness is not an outcome. Happiness is an attitude, and it's a choice. And who knows, perhaps, if we were able to ask the Savior at the time he was walking to Golgotha if he was happy, he may have felt that he was happy because his whole intent was to do the Father's will. That was the purpose of his life and the course that he chose. So it seems to me that happiness is the attitude and the choice that we make and how we're going to respond to the things that happen to us. And your original question, I think, was uh, about can can the two elements of his life, the faith and the discipline, interface without integrating? And it seems to me that it comes back to the question that he asked or the statement he made that if God matters, I need to recognize God as being involved. And I think that that's why they can't integrate because one has to be superlative to the other. That if I'm going to live a faith-filled life, I have to be willing to recognize God in all parts of my life. I really appreciated Dr. Slife's integrity that he recognized that at times it, that this is an an atheistic time in my life when I am thinking as when I'm thinking from a naturalistic perspective. I, I appreciated that because I do know that the times that I feel the strongest, I do believe that that is when I am the weakest, that that's when I'm relying on the arm of flesh or when when I'm thinking that I'm all that and not trusting in God. And I know that things never go as well as when I will choose to be humble and for my feeling, I think that that is why they cannot integrate that. That that if I choose to to follow God or I choose to have faith in God, that that has to be the overarching theme of every part of my life. Wonderful point, Elizabeth. Um, he mentioned that God is necessary in all my practices. That it's a theistic approach to life, and I loved how he said I. Not only begin and end the day in prayer, I knit the day together in prayer. And as Steve pointed out, an ongoing state of prayer. You're listening to a conversation in good faith with listeners sharing their thoughts on the first half of today's show with Dr. Brent Slife. Back to the conversation. That theistic approach still allows for lesser truths to have their place because he still has his Uh, practical application of how to use his uh, psychology and therapy to enable people to see certain truths, but he always claims that for him, God is supreme, you know, and I think he has absolute integrity. He has learned how to interface that to a certain degree because he's subordinated certain truths to the higher truth that there is a God for him. I, I thought it was interesting when Steve was asking uh, Dr. Slife, are there any times you feel out of control? And he said, yeah, all the time. In, in fact, 
when I'm feeling most in control is when I feel most atheist. And that was to me, what? You know, now wait a minute. I I, I thought I I like being in control, and I, but isn't that true that we are so small next to God, and that if we uh, don't allow Him to really fill in all the gaps and make our life really what it could be, and we think, yeah, we we got it in control, like Elizabeth, you're saying, I'm all that. Legacy said how he functions most a lot of the time as a naturalistic atheist. And said yeah. most of us probably do. We don't think about it that yeah. way. Yeah. And he was talking about having that prayerful attitude in our hearts ongoing during the day. I kinda like to go back to the scandal that Dr. Slife described when he was when he was a young boy when he was about 12 years old, and he, he, he wasn't ready to endorse the teachings of his, of his congregation. He, he, he described it as not being willing to sign on the dotted line. So I was, I was talking, I, I have a son, and there are certain expectations in our family. We, we, his dad and I love God, and we want to, and it's a choice we make to, to seek to, to be obedient and to be faithful. And my son uh, said to me this week, um, he said that he wished when he was younger that maybe he would have, it would have been better if he would have just gone crazy and not felt like he had to toe the line and be the perfect little boy in this perfect little family. And I was heartbroken because I had no idea that he felt that way, that he felt like because of our beliefs that he was expected to never make a mistake or that he couldn't have a problem or he couldn't do something wrong because of how it might look or reflect on his dad and I. And um, that was heartbreaking for me to find out that my son had carried this burden. And I wished as a mother that I would have recognized it. And I just love Dr. Slife's mother so much that she saw in her son the need to let him learn to trust God and that she trusted God enough to care for her son. And I just wished so much that I could have spared my son, that I would have had the wisdom to spare my son that and know that God would have taken care of him and that he would have done a way better job than I did. Anyway, I really appreciated um, the fact that he was allowed to have a scandal or that he was allowed, that he was trusted to God to become who he who he is meant to be and to find God and to feel the personal relationship and the personal connection that he now has with him, that he feels that peace, probably not all the time, but that sometimes that peace that passes all understanding because he feels that relationship and that connectedness with God in his relationships now. Anyway, I thought that was awesome. I love this man. When our children go through grief, it hurts us more than our own the things that we have experienced on our, ourselves. And I have, um, Elizabeth, I have gone through something very similar with my son. He's a wonderful young man. But we had a conversation about God and belief, and he said, you know, I have been on my knees and I have prayed so hard to know, and I have been given no answer. So as far as I'm concerned, I don't believe that God loves me. What do you say as a mother besides just put your arms around them and tell them how much you love them? Because as they become adults, they have to go through these things on their own. You can only be there, but you can't make things happen for anyone. No, you can't. I, I know I had uh, 
a daughter who at some point, and this was over a period of time, but but it, it came kind of all of a sudden where she totally broke with the way that I believe uh, religiously and um, in a series of letters and, and ongoing discussions just said, you're wrong, Dad. You're totally wrong. And here's where you're wrong and went through all the different uh, items and and how I, I didn't know how to respond. I, I, I was, thought I would be more mature, but <laughs> I actually kind of was just uh, argued and and, and uh, just couldn't, couldn't it was very hard for me to deal with. But uh, looking back and where it, where it actually got better was where I, I backed away, calmed down and said, you know what? let's let's agree that that we both maybe can be right in our ways and that you uh, have found something that is different from from the way I go, but I still love you so very much and, and, and respect you and you're a smart lady, smart young lady. Uh, and let's just go forward and each believing the way we believe. And it turns out she's actually been a great mother and, and uh, raised these wonderful grandchildren of mine and one of the more religious people I know, but doesn't believe the same way I do. That is such a sweet example of what Dr. Slife was talking about, about when we feel the least in control is probably when we're the most religious, when, or when, when, when we're trusting God the most is when we feel the least in control. I love that. And I just, I, I feel kind of bad because I told this story about my son and my heartbreak and, and my heart did break for him. But on the other hand, I just always really want to point out the yes, that God lives and that he's really here and that he didn't forget my boy and he didn't forget me and he didn't forget Lena and he didn't forget her daughter or Don and his daughter. He doesn't forget any of us. And so the yes is that like, Sure, we're going to do stuff wrong, and I'm I'm totally going to tank and bottom out, <laughs> but but that God knows it, and that He's still in the game, and if I'll stay in the game, then He can bring it all back around, and it might take me a long time to learn, but my experience has been that He doesn't have a time limit for me. That as long as I'll keep trying, it's there's sufficient time for whatever needs to happen in my life or in your life or in all of our lives for it to come around to being made right as long as we'll stay in the game, as long as we'll keep trying. And it's such a wonderful feeling when suddenly you feel that unexplainably wonderful love that you know that you're loved beyond your own capabilities because that is what sustains your faith and helps you to take but one step in front of the other and keep going. Um, and I love my children. They're all wonderful people, but they all have to approach their faith in their own way. And that's something that I have come to realize. At the older I get, the more I realize that I, I take care of myself and I love them unconditionally, but they find their own way. When I couldn't fix my parents' broken marriage, I thought I had failed. And after a couple of years, my, my religious fervor, my convictions, my faith all died out. And I wouldn't believe in God, teachers, preachers, or anyone else. And the result of that is I ended up as an alcoholic and addict at the age of 16, and I ended up in state prison in Arizona at the age of 17. And I spent over five years, and I took a class in comparative religion and philosophy. I decided that education and exercise were going to fix me. And in that class, I started to feel that God was real. 
even though I had not approached God for 10 years. And I finally was convinced enough that I got on my knees and I prayed and I said, God, I believe that you're there. I just don't understand why. I'm an alcoholic, I'm an addict, and I've got a number on my chest. I'm a convict. Why? And God literally called me by name and said, Mark, it's because I love you. And I have never been the same since. And so God allows us our own paths. The important thing is we need to stay in the game because the only thing that really matters is how God feels about us and how we feel about God. And so to this day, my counsel to anyone else is to ask God two questions. God, do you know who I am? And God, how do you feel about me? And the God of our understanding will reveal himself or itself to whatever our understanding is. But I am grateful to be alive because the God of my understanding did reveal himself to me. That's our time for today. Thanks to our panelists and especially Dr. Brent's life for sharing his time, his stories, and his faith. In Good Faith is committed to the idea that we all benefit from hearing people of widely varying backgrounds tell their personal experience with faith and belief. In fact, we think people with such experience deserve some of our best listening. I hope you found value in today's conversation, and we welcome your thoughts and ideas about the program. Reach out to us anytime via email, ingoodfaith at byu.edu. Find our shows archived online for listening or sharing, byuradio.org slash ingoodfaith, or subscribe to the podcast in iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode was produced with help from Marcus Smith and Christine Knockleby. I'm Stephen Cap Perry. I hope you join us again soon, right here, In Good Faith.